Let's now read from the Heidelberg Catechism and listen to God's word as the Church has summarized it and confesses it in Lord's Day 45. You can find this on page 524 in your Book of Praise. Lord's Day 45, starting with question 116. Why is prayer necessary for Christians? Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness which God requires of us. Moreover, God will give his grace and the Holy Spirit only to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing ask him for these gifts and thank him for them. What belongs to a prayer which pleases God and is heard by him? First, we must from the heart call upon the one true God only who has revealed himself in his word for all that he has commanded us to pray. Second, we must thoroughly know our need and misery so that we may humble ourselves before God. Third, we must rest on this firm foundation that, although we do not deserve it, God will certainly hear our prayer for the sake of Christ our Lord as he has promised us in his word. What has God commanded us to ask of him? All the things we need for body and soul, as included in the prayer which Christ our Lord himself taught us. What is the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The sermon for this afternoon was prepared by Reverend Wes Bradenhoff, the minister of the Providence Canadian Reformed Church of Hamilton, Ontario. After the reading of the sermon, we will respond with the singing of Psalm 145, stanzas 4 and 5. Beloved Congregation of Christ, why is it so hard for us to pray? It's happened to me, and I'm sure it's happened to you too. You're praying, speaking with the Holy God, and then suddenly your mind drifts, and you start thinking about something else. Maybe you even fall asleep. Or you forget to pray. Or your prayers are, so, are superficial and start all to sound the same. Well, brothers and sisters, take comfort because we're not the first ones to struggle with prayer. Believers throughout the centuries have faced this. Take Martin Luther, for example. We're told that Martin Luther had a puppy. His puppy's name was Topol. One day, Topol was at the dinner table looking for scraps from his master, watching with open mouth and fixed, motionless eyes. Luther said, Oh, if I could only pray the way this dog watches the meat. All his thoughts are concentrated on that piece of meat. Otherwise, he has no thought, wish, or hope. All of the problems we have with prayer leads us to the inevitable conclusion that prayer is not something that's natural for us. We are not born as people who automatically and easily speak with their Creator. Instead, we have to be taught how to pray. That's why the Catechism devotes this last section to this very important subject, 
We confess that prayer is the most important part of our thankfulness. It's where our thankfulness starts. When we realize how great a salvation we have in Jesus Christ, from our hearts we desire to please God and live in a healthy family relationship with our Father. We desire to ask our Father for more grace and for richer measures of his Holy Spirit. All of that begins with prayer that pleases God and is heard by him. Today, this afternoon, we will consider how to pray in that way. We will see that we need, one, a proper address for our prayers, two, proper self-assessment for our prayers, and three, proper faith for our prayers. Just a moment ago, we read Solomon's prayer, as we find it in 1 Kings 8. Before we look at some of the content of that prayer, we should also consider what we read what we read about that prayer in the following chapters. In 1 Kings 9, God tells Solomon that he heard his prayer and answered him. In other words, God put his stamp of approval on what Solomon had prayed. This was a prayer which pleased God and was heard by him, a prayer we can all learn from. Now notice the way that Solomon begins this God-pleasing prayer. He says, O Lord, God of Israel. Literally, he says, O Yahweh, God of Israel. Lord, in all capital letters, is God's special name, Yahweh. The word God, in Hebrew, is Elohim, or El, and it could equally be used for false gods, such as Molech or Baal. The same is not true for Yahweh. There was no other God who had that personal name. Yahweh was Yahweh. And he was also the God of Israel. It's true that at various times Israel did serve false gods, but only Yahweh was truly the God of Israel, the God who had made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Solomon refers to this covenant promise at the end of verse 23, and then also the covenant with David in verse 24. Solomon also acknowledges that Yahweh is entirely unique when he says in verse 23, There is no God like you in heaven, above, or on earth below. With these words, Solomon confesses his faith that no one compares with Yahweh. We find similar thoughts expressed in other prayers and songs in Scripture. In Psalm 77, Asaph says, Your ways, O God, are are holy. What God is so great as our God? And in Micah, whose name means who is like Yahweh, in Micah 7, verse 18, we read, Who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance, there is only one true God, only one God who saves sinners. And the Bible teaches that this one true God, whom we are all to call upon in prayer, that this is the one true God, whom we are all to call upon in prayer. When we pray, we we will not call upon, upon some generic vanilla God, He must be the one true God only, the one who has revealed himself in his word, the true God who has revealed himself as three in one. He is the Father, our creator, the one who sustains the universe and everything in it by his mighty hand. We must call upon the one true God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Don't ever forget that the one true God is the God of the gospel, the God of good news. 
And then we must also call upon the true God who has revealed himself in the person of the Holy Spirit as our renewer and sanctifier. Here too, he is the God of good news. We must call upon the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think we can all agree with that, but then someone might raise the question, are we then allowed to address all three persons of the Trinity? After all, the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray to God the Father. So does that mean that we shouldn't pray to Lord Jesus or to the Holy Spirit? Those are good questions. To answer that, we need to consider a couple of points. First of all, the Lord's Prayer is a model. It is a pattern. It was intended to be a guide for prayer. We can see this in the fact that elsewhere in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray in his name. But when he gives the Lord's Prayer, he doesn't include this at all. This indicates that there is freedom when it comes to prayer. Though the Lord's Prayer gives us valuable instruction, we are not bound exclusively to its words or its formulations. The second point we need to consider is that there is a variety in the prayers recorded in the New Testament. When the apostles prayed in the book of Acts, we don't hear them praying the Lord's Prayer or even using any of its words or formulations though the thoughts are certainly there. More to the point, the apostles and the early church themselves prayed directly to the Lord Jesus on some occasions. We see an example of that with Stephen at the end of Acts 7. As he was being stoned, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. We might also mention Paul's Maranatha prayer at the end of 1 Corinthians. The fact that the model prayer of the Lord Jesus teaches us to call upon the Father suggests that addressing the Holy Spirit and the Son in prayer would not be our regular practice. But the fact that the early church did call on the Son in prayer says that the freedom is there. And if the freedom is there to call upon the Son in prayer, then why not also the Holy Spirit? So as we pray, we must pray to the one true God only. But we have the freedom to address each of the three persons of the Trinity as well. Our normal, regular practice is to address the Father. But from time to time, we may also address the Son and the Holy Spirit. We might address the Lord Jesus in our prayers when we consider how great a Savior he is, and we stand in awe of him. How could you not address him with words of such praise at such a time? When our bodies are breaking down and we are suffering, we might call to him as the one who understands, the one who has lived a human existence on this earth. Hebrews 2 verse 11 tells us that Jesus is the one who is not ashamed to call us brothers. Think about that. King of kings, Lord of lords, our brother. And Hebrews 2 verse 18 says that because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So, loved ones, call out to your Savior when you are tempted and when you suffer. He knows, he hears, he understands, and he will act for you. We might address the Holy Spirit directly in our prayers when we earnestly desire his work to further our sanctification. We need to remember that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person, a person with whom we can can communicate a person to whom we can pray. We can call out to him, praise him for the faith 
he has created in our hearts, created in our hearts, and ask him to fill us more and more and lead us with the word. We can pray to the Holy Spirit and ask him to put more light on our way through the Holy Scriptures. When we don't know what to pray or what to say, or when we cannot pray because of old age or declining health, we can also look to the Holy Spirit and call out for his help. Romans 8, verse 26 and 27 says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. So, as when we pray, we must ensure that we have the proper address, that we call upon the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For our prayers to please God, we also need the Holy Spirit to lead us to a proper assessment of ourselves. The Catechism states it this way, We must thoroughly know our need and misery, so that we may humble ourselves before God. Sometimes I wonder if we really believe that. Now we might all have our own feelings or emotions about this matter, but let's try and set those aside. Luther had a little ditty. Feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Nothing else is worth believing. In other words, don't build your life before God on the basis of your feelings. We need to go to scripture and see what it says. So what does the Bible teach us about this? We could start with Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8. Need and misery feature prominently in this prayer. Notice what Solomon says in verse 46. He acknowledges that there is no one who does not sin before God. Do you know what that means? All people have a need for forgiveness. All people are in a miserable state because God is holy and by themselves they are not. But Solomon doesn't stop there. He says that when the people know their sin and misery and confess it before God, he asks God to hear and to forgive, and he fully expects God to do that. What is clear is that knowing everyone's need and misery is meant to lead one to humility before God, the proper posture for prayer. Here, too, think of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Two men went to the temple to pray. The one, a Pharisee, extolled his own virtues in a loud prayer intended to be heard by all those around him. This Pharisee was not a sinner. He was a righteous man, at least in his own eyes. Then there was the tax collector, the scum of the earth in the society of his day. He stood in a corner of the temple and beat his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What did, God, what did Jesus say at the conclusion of this parable? I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Knowing our need and misery is also the reason why the Lord Jesus taught us to pray for the forgiveness of sins. We're going to hear more about that in the fifth petition, but for now... Just note that it's there. Why is it there? It's there to remind us of our need for a Savior, to keep us turning to the cross of Jesus Christ every day. (coughs) 
There are many more passages that we could consider on this point, but let's just look at a couple more. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah is brought to the throne room of God. Here was a faithful Israelite prophet. But what is his posture before God at this moment? Verse 5 tells us that he said, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now when we pray, we do not come into God's presence the way that Isaiah did. Nevertheless, his posture is the right one. Humility and acknowledgement of one's status apart from grace. Then, at the end of Isaiah, in the last chapter, chapter 66, we read the words from God in verse 2. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Forget about self-esteem. Do you want to be the object of God's esteem? Do you want to be valued by God? Then you must thoroughly know your need and misery and humble yourself before him. So how do we do that? There are two parts to knowing our need and misery, and they belong together. The first part is to reflect carefully on and study diligently who your God is. If you are to know your sin and your need and misery, you have to know your God. You have to be impressed with him. Be impressed with his holiness. You must be entirely God-besotted. That happens as you spend time reading and studying the scriptures. And as you come to know your God and his holiness, you will know what your problem is. Your problem is God and the difference that exists between him and you. God is holy and we are not. Besides viciously attacking it and punishing it, God will not have anything to do with sin. And we have everything to do with sin. Perhaps you've heard of the great church father, Augustine of Hippo. Augustine lived during the 4th and 5th century after Christ. At a certain point, Augustine decided to try and live the monastic life. He had hoped that life as a monk would help him to deal with the sin in his life, especially sexual lusts. However, he was disappointed to find out that while he could now spend weeks without seeing a woman, he continued to struggle in his dreams at night. Not only that, but either, but he either became more aware of other sins, or other sins took hold of him. He noticed his greed. He noticed his pride. He became argumentative and angry, and so on. He thought that the monastic life would put sin to death in him, but it simply awoke him to the sinfulness remaining in his heart. He could not escape. Isn't he a lot like you and me? God is holy. That's the first thing we have to recognize, and it has to penetrate our understanding so that it's not just a bland theological statement, but a truth that grips us and even terrifies us. The second thing we have to recognize is connected And it's the fact that we are sinners. As much as we may grow in grace and knowledge, we will always be sinners as long as we live on this earth. We have to keep repeating it to ourselves until Christ's return makes it no longer true. But then also look to God again. The Holy One has a holy justice and a holy righteousness. But he also also has a holy love. He has a holy grace in Jesus Christ. His love and grace are unlike anyone else's. Here is a God who in love predestined us to be adopted as 
his sons through Jesus Christ. Here is a God who gives us the opposite of what we deserve. Yes, we need to look at ourselves carefully and thoroughly, know our sin and misery. Don't skimp on that. As painful as it is, become more and more thoroughly convicted of your need for salvation. But at the same time, the Bible does not teach us to fix our eyes on our need and misery. The scriptures teach us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to focus on him. Just as the Israelites looked to the bronze serpent in the wilderness and were healed, they couldn't pretend that there wasn't nothing that there was nothing wrong with them and go to their tents. They had to really know their need, and if they didn't, they were fooling themselves and they would die. But knowing their need and misery led them to life by looking to the bronze serpent, which was a type of Christ. For us, we need to fix our eyes on him. There is an old saying, and it's a biblical one. For every one look we take at ourselves, we need to take ten looks to Christ. But we need that one look, but we need that one careful look. Know your need and misery so that you can humble yourself before God and flee to the cross for your salvation. Know your need and misery so that you can have the proper posture before God in prayer, the posture of humility. Now I know this goes against the grain, not only of our culture in general, but also that of the general Christian milieu in which we find ourselves. Humility is not a strong point, either in Canadian culture or in the general Christian ethos of our day. Instead, we hear the opposite message, don't we? We hear a lot about pride and self-esteem. Loved ones, this is the spirit of the age in which we live. It is not the teaching of Scripture. The Bible leads us to the kingdom where the way down is the way up, where to be low is to be high, where the broken heart is the healed heart, and the contrite heart is the rejoicing spirit. The kingdom of Christ revealed in Scripture is the place where the repenting soul is the victorious soul, where to have nothing is to possess everything, where to bear the cross is to wear the crown, and where to give is to receive. When we recognize these things and have a proper self-assessment, we can pray in a way that pleases God, in a way that will be heard by him. Finally, we need to briefly consider the proper faith for a God-pleasing prayer. Here again, our focus has to be on Jesus Christ. We have God's promises in his word that he will surely hear us because of him. Think of what the Lord Jesus says in John 14, verses 13 and 14. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Note again that we may ask the Lord Jesus. We can pray to him. And in John 16, verse 23, he says, I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. There we pray to the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus. Many of us have a good practice of ending our prayers with, For Jesus' sake, or words to that effect. I wonder how many of us actually think about what that means. We teach it to our children as well. But what does the word sake mean? It's not a common English word. It comes from Old English and it means something like out of consideration for or because of. 
Of course, there's nothing wrong with using the word, but let's be sure that we know what it means so that we don't run the danger of using vain repetitions in our prayers. Just saying words, because that's what we've always said before. In fact, I would urge you to use a variety in the endings of your prayers that make it explicit that your faith is that God will hear this prayer because Christ is your Savior and he intercedes for you. Note well that the Catechism says that this is the firm foundation upon which we rest. Faith in Christ is the way to God's ear and his heart. God does not care about how long your prayer is or how eloquent your prayer is. He does not pay attention to the number of your prayers or how well thought out they are. The thing that matters in God-pleasing prayer is sincere faith in Jesus Christ. God calls you this afternoon to rest on the firm foundation that you have access to the ear and heart of God through Christ, your Savior. Believe in him and know that God will always hear you and give you everything he commands us to pray for, everything we need for body and soul. Amen. Mm-hmm.